is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't say those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey's denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. Another week, another episode of FUVFC. Nick Guzman here alongside James Burley and Chris Shepard. A lot to talk about. We're in the heat of the Premier League season. Man City have dropped points for the first time. The U.S. is going to play Germany and Ghana this week. But first, James, how you doing? I'm doing great, especially because we got Germany and Ghana on the books for some U.S. soccer. Uh, it's been a while since we've had some good teams to look forward to in matches, a good team for the U.S. as well, not like what we saw in the summer with the Gold Cup. So I'm very excited, mostly about that, but it was a big week in Premier League fixtures as well. So uh, excited to get through everything. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I'm excited to look into uh, this U.S. versus Germany match. As a lifelong Germany fan, you know, this is going to be a very exciting game. Excited to talk about the Prem as well, the big VAR decisions in Man City versus Arsenal that may have overshadowed the outcome of the game. So, yeah, I'm very excited. Before we get into all the U.S. MNT excitement, I think we have to start with that Man City-Arsenal game from this past Sunday. Arsenal walking away as 1-0 victors on that deflected goal from Gabriel Martinelli in the 86th minute City lose in in they lost the pre they now got two losses on the season and shockingly maybe eight matches in Tottenham Hotspur find themselves atop the Premier League Arsenal with the same number of points at 20 and then Man City at 18 and Liverpool at 17 but that match between Arsenal and Man City we've seen some classics between these two teams in previous years this one I wouldn't necessarily call a classic in terms of the type of, of soccer we, we saw it wasn't necessarily as exciting as previous Arsenal-Man City games, but Arsenal finally get over that hump and are able to beat City at home and get a crucial three points. James, what impressed you most about this Arsenal team, and where do you think Man City sort of came up short? I think Man City came up short in the fact that they couldn't find their main guy up front. With the players that they're missing on the field currently, especially in midfield, that's going to bring a lot more attention to your goal scorers in Erling Holland and I think Saliba in particular, was very uh, important in making sure he didn't get a lot of service and didn't get a lot of time on the ball. And I think that's where City really maybe focused their game plan a bit too much, and I think they've been criticized for that in the past. Um, and I've usually been against that criticism, saying when you have the best striker in the world, you give him the ball and he'll score. Uh, and this time they didn't have enough help around him, and i got to give Arsenal a lot of credit for a 90-minute performance in ways that sometimes they've checked out of matches this year. They're still unbeaten going into the Premier League race and I'll say they're officially in the race because until they beat City, they're not. And they have, so now I can give it to them. But it's still eight matches in. I would be hard-pressed to, to, to say that in 30 matches, Man City haven't leapfrogged both Spurs and Arsenal. But we're not there yet. And right where we are now is Arsenal have been playing some brilliant football. Spurs, to many people's surprise, including my own, have been playing arguably even better. 
So I, I think Arsenal, I've been very impressed by the ability to create chances consistently over a 90-minute basis, especially against a City team where, yeah, it wasn't a classic, but it was a tug-of-war. And ultimately, it takes a deflection on the way in, but it's a deserved three points for Arsenal in the end, in my opinion. Yeah, um, great points by you, James, how Man City failed to get Hall in the ball and ultimately a great win by Arsenal. But I do want to kind of talk about the elephant in the room here, and that is the huge VAR decision on the Kovacic tackle. So basically what happens is Oliver decides to give a yellow on the field, and then ultimately I don't believe VAR went to check to see if it should be changed to a red. And this is now, what, three instances where VAR kind of overshadowed what should have been a huge game, a great tactical battle between these two teams, and ultimately it coming down to whether or not VAR should have such a big role in this game. And I think, you know, I was watching um, Mark Goldbridge yesterday, (laughs) everyone's favorite YouTube pundit, and he said, the team that's going to win the Prem is going to be the team that doesn't have all these bad decisions against them. And I think that's the sad truth as Griffin Stevenson shows an image off screen here. Um, But I think that's kind of the sad truth, you know. In the Spurs-Liverpool game, obviously they released the... uh, VAR audio for the Diaz goal and that being such a huge point of uh, emphasis in that game as well but ultimately you know great win by Arsenal I gotta give credit to them staying with Tottenham surprise team in this title race but uh, VAR yet again uh, being the overshadowing factor here I mean in terms of V I feel like other countries in Europe don't have the same problems with VAR as the Premier League does I mean, in terms of offside decisions, if you want to go back to that Tottenham-Liverpool game, you know, other countries have adopted that, like, automated system where it's literally just, there's no human element. The technology tells you whether he's offside or not. There's none of this line drawing and, and, and check complete and all that kind of stuff where there's still room for a lot of human error. And I think there's been a lot of decisions this season that we've seen VAR just become a prominent part of these games when they really it really should not be it's been three four weeks in a row now that every discussion around club football and the prem has ultimately one way or another it, whether it be in the Ar- the liverpool spurs match or arsenal city now some way or another the conversation turns to var and we've now heard christian pulisic come out and say it. we've heard managers in the prem say it uh just just eliminate it right because it's causing more problems than it's solving and then i think about the attitude people had towards refereeing pre-VAR, and it's you said the same things about referees then before there was a video element, and I don't know. The, I'm very critical of the way VAR is implemented, especially in England. Um, I have crit- critiques about how it's done in the U.S. as well in Major League Soccer, but they tend to do a bit of a better job. Um, the refereeing in, in, across the world in this sport is always going to be criticized, is always going to make mistakes, whether it's through a video review process or on the field and they make decisions immediately, they're not going to get it right. They're going to confuse people and you're going to feel hard done. And that's always been the case in every sport ever that has refereeing, especially an emotional, passionate sport like soccer where the field's wide open and literally anything can happen at any point. There's so much variability as to what the referee's going to have to decide. So you're, you're never going to be satisfied. And that, that's, that's my, my large opinion on refereeing in general and VAR in general. Yes, they make stupid mistakes. The Liverpool Spurs one was the most obvious one because the VAR thought that it was given a goal on the field and then 
checked it and was like, yeah, the call stands. And the referee on the field's like, all right, I, I don't know what's going on up there. So there was a communication error, human element messed up. And that's the sort of thing that happens on the field when there's no video element regardless. So I don't know. I, I think if you're complaining about VAR specifically and saying that VAR is biased and is going to skew results one way or the other and this team is going to win and that team's going to win because of it, I think that's I think that's naive. And I think that's like, it's just, it's it's the same beast just with a different face. You didn't like referees then. You don't like them now that they've modernized. Uh, and I think that, yeah, in other systems outside of England, they eliminate humanity as much as possible. And I think that's, if you want objectively correct decisions, that's the goal. But the whole clear and obvious error element of VAR is, I think, something that gets overlooked a bit too much. If you're spending five, six minutes on a decision, probably isn't that clear or obvious. So that that's my piece on VAR as a whole. And I think a lot of it comes down to that VAR was sort of marketed as this thing where, okay, your team's no longer going to get, you know, be impacted by these poor yeah. decisions from referees. Now it's all going to be fixed. But it's if, as long as people are still, like, operating exactly. the technology, there's always going to be errors. We're humans. People make mistakes. I have a lot of sympathy towards referees from my one summer as a as a referee. <laughs> um, I was not cut out for that job. It is it's tough. Um, but I think another thing to touch on in this Man City Arsenal game is, you know, obviously City no Rodri, no no Kevin De Bruyne. Arguably, I wouldn't say arguably they're two most important players. Yeah. Um, just when you think of Man City, you think of those guys. The stability, the stability that Rodri provides and the attacking flair that Kevin De Bruyne provides I think you could tell that that was missing for City in this game but you know injuries are something all teams have to deal with Chris yeah I think that obviously when you lose players of Rodri's and De Bruyne's quality obviously you kind of see like the drop off in the team obviously you lose that ability to get Hall in the ball as James pointed out earlier Um, however I think that once you have to consider the City team as a whole and their strengths, they do still have good players. So maybe one can say that City is kind of in a crisis mode right now and that um, you don't have this kind of quality to get Holland the ball, and obviously you need Holland to score goals in order to win. But I do think that one can look at this and say, oh, City can still win games, but how are they going to do it? And I think with... The loss of Rodri and De Bruyne, obviously, it's a huge element of the midfield. But you have to incorporate new players like Doku, who's been doing great. How is Foden, who's playing pretty well right now, going to fit in as well? And yeah, I think that City should be able to weather this storm for as long as they need to. There's been so many points over the last two years where I've been doing this podcast where Man City dropped points or they've lost a game and... (laughs) <laughs> Some people have, or I'm not going to name names. I can't even remember who in particular. But, but there's been speculation that, you know, Sid, it, it, this is going to be finally the time where City doesn't win. And then we get to May and they're raising the trophy again. Yeah. And I think the injuries to De Bruyne and Rodri, yes, they, they lost to Arsenal. But I think you'd be hard pressed to think that City are not going to get things together eventually. But if it means that we have a title race in this Premier League season, I'm. <laughs> That'd be I'll great. sacrifice Rodri Fantastic. and Kevin De Bruyne yeah. for a title race. It's been so. It's been it's been a while, and this league is just so much more exciting when there's multiple teams fighting for fighting for that title. And I think Spurs are the Spurs are the the surprise to be at the top of the table. I don't think I don't think most people will expect them to be there come the end of the season, just based on 
what Man City does, where Arsenal were last year, and then just the history of Tottenham Hotspur. But maybe it's different now under Ange Postacoglu. But I think when you're looking at the Prem as a whole, there's been slip-ups from, from City so far. Liverpool seem like they need to go down by two goals to actually start playing. Mm. Tottenham are this upstart team. Arsenal are trying to improve from last year. It's just, when you look at the top four, it's like, it's exciting. And that's what you want the Prem to be. It is exciting, but it also feels like, at least compared to last year's, uh, or last few years, really, it's not like we're eight matches in. The season is is well underway. It's, It's October now. And still some of these teams, I feel like we're getting the sense, Liverpool especially, who... Their quality, I would put them second to City in terms of roster quality, just player for player. And yeah, like you said, they need to wake up by getting scored on twice before they even start playing in matches. And that's a very beginning of the season, knock off the rust type of thing that they really haven't shaken yet. Uh, City, on the other hand, have been, I would say, temporarily and briefly on the back burner from injuries. I think they'll sort it out. They have the deepest team in the world. It's not like they're going to have much problems by asking John Stones or Calvin Phillips to step into the holding midfield role and Bernardo Silva and Phil Foden and, and, and Julian Alvarez can all play in an attacking midfield role. So they, they have players there that can get it done against other top six opposition. Uh, but it, it's definitely more exciting. Arsenal hadn't beaten City in the Premier League in eight years, I think, not since 2015. So the fact that Arsenal have been probably the, the biggest challenger to City of the last two seasons and going into this year were projected to do that and they finally actually beat them in a match in the league speaks to me in a, in a way that says, yeah, this could go down to the wire. But Nick, you're right. We've been here before. We've been here when Liverpool beat City, when Spurs beat City, and we all think, man, they, they didn't actually look that good. They they got knocked out in the Champions League. Uh, maybe maybe they, they don't have the steam to, to go all the way. And then they win 12 of their last 13, by all by multiple goals, and they just confirm to everybody that they're the strongest team in the world. And I think... Just two points back, eight matches in, they'll be all right. I think they'll be just fine. And you know what the beautiful thing about being a host is? You get to decide that you can talk about Chelsea a little bit, even though even they're so though far they're down not the table. Worth it. Yeah. But I do want. They've won two prem games in a row. They beat Burnley four-one. They beat Fulham before that on the road. On the Burnley. road, on not the road easy to, place. On the road to Fulham too. But <laughs> I, I get, I understand where there might be some pushback saying, "Oh, it's it's only Fulham. It's only Burnley." Yeah, you're right, but. I thought Chelsea played a very strong game against Burnley, yeah. and you could start to see those ideas that Mauricio Pochettino was trying to build through this team, and they started to come through. And it's exciting that Chelsea are scoring goals mm. as opposed to just getting shut out 1-0 every single week. And do I think they'll get top four? No. But I do from, from – they're in 11th right now, but I want an outside perspective on am I overreacting to be – because usually this is just sort of a Chelsea back and forth when me and Chris Carino go, and no one's no one's there to <laughs> sort of check our delusions. Well, so, yeah. I, I won't call you delusional, because I, I, it's pretty clear that they've turned a corner. Uh, I'm not going to say that that corner has now turned and is this long stretch to 10 wins in a row. It probably won't be, but the fact that they are scoring goals at a consistent basis, especially against a team who bunkers down and makes it very difficult to have any space in the attacking third, especially at home when they go down, is Burnley. Burnley went up in that match. Burnley went, Burnley went up and could have just parked the bus the whole game. That is it's not uh, uncommon for them to do that. And Chelsea with an onslaught of four goals, it really helped that they got one before halftime. Um, that sort of thing shows a lot of character. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we watched a lot of teams that should have scored before halftime. There's one in particular who has so many chances in the first half, doesn't, and then concedes in the second half. 
they wear red and they play in New Jersey. But <laughs> the point is, they've actually turned a corner. It's not going to be all sunshines and rainbows, but it's definitely an improvement. And I think the fact that you're getting goals from guys like Cole Palmer and Raheem Sterling as well is an exciting thing because Raheem Sterling last year was yeah. not great and left Pulisic to be the scapegoat, so I'm not too thrilled with him personally yes. either. Of course. Um, as we talk about Chelsea, I do want to remind you of the games that Chelsea do have coming up. In a seven-week stretch, they yeah. play Arsenal, win. <laughs> Brentford, which they could win. I'll give you that. Spurs, which I also think they can win. I think Spurs will eventually regress to the mean, so they do have a chance there. Then City, Newcastle, and Brighton. So let's say if you're Chelsea, you would realistically want to win at least three or four of those games. And I think in reality, I think they can do it. These past few games, you know, Sterling is in the best form of his career. It's in coming my at opinion. the right time. Yeah, coming at the right time. Getting guys like Mudrick and Broya going in that Fulham game uh, is obviously good to see. But I think that in terms of this daunting schedule up ahead, if you can get at least three wins, maybe a draw out of these, um, I think you're in good position to go on and challenge to get into at least the top six, if not four. Yeah, I think this upcoming stretch really will give us a little insight into if Chelsea have really turned a corner or is it the, if it's the Burnley and, and Fulham effect? Because this is about as tough a stretch of fixtures as you could possibly draw up in the Premier So there's, the Premier there's 21 points on the table in these next seven matches, Nick. As a Chelsea fan, how many points would you be happy to see them come out with in 21? How, that's it. Realistically, or is, there, is there a target number that you'd like to exceed? Target number, like, like thirteen. That's what I'm, I'm saying. Like within the 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 twelve range is what I would. I say. think anything above that, if we're getting towards like fifteen, I think that's, there's that just would, too many. That's there, that's, that's, a, that's that would a, be remarkable, crazy yeah. success. Yeah. But just when you when you in the Premier League is just so deep now in terms of you've got teams like Brighton, Aston Villa. Newcastle. And I, that, I go back to that Bournemouth game too. That was that yeah. was a deadlocked match, and that was that was a strong Bournemouth performance too. I'm not. That's not me taking anything away from Chelsea. But there's so many of these these sort of second tier teams. West Ham, you can throw in that conversation too, that that are pushing for European spots. Maybe not necessarily Champions League spot, but there's a lot of depth and quality in the Premier League, and any sort of any road match is not going to be easy to win. The last thing I want to touch on in in the Prem is Tottenham. We know they've been playing so well under Ange Postacoglu. James Madison looks like the second coming of Jesus I love, Christ. I love Madison. James Madison. James Madison is so, so good. And they're playing so well. There were so many questions when Harry Kane left. You know, is it going to be just enough for Son to lead the line? Evidently, yes. It seems like it's enough. But is Tottenham, well, number one, is Tottenham for real? And number two, what's a successful season for Tottenham in the Premier League considering the start they've had and where they are right now? Ooh, I, 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 I want to say, yeah, they're the real deal. I'll, I'll answer that question first, but it's so hard to create like a positive outlook for them after 38 Premier League matches because they didn't think they'd be in first at this no. point. And now that they are, that's going to be their expectation, their standard. I don't think they'll finish there. I think they'll fall to third or fourth maybe. And I think that if you take, if you take that away from what they've done in the first eight matches and you said before the season started Spurs finishing third, fourth, most people probably wouldn't have even agreed with you then. So I think for them to finish top four, ultimately, if you peel away some of the layers of how they've been playing right now, that is a successful season for them, absolutely. But what Postacoglu's gotten them to do is play a free-forming style of football that they've always failed to be able to do over a course of a full season. And I don't know, but 
this feels different. And I'd like to think that they'll turn some more heads throughout the rest of the year. But I think third, fourth is probably their ceiling realistically. Yeah. The one word that comes to mind when I think of Spurs is freedom. Without Harry Kane, you can play such a free-flowing style of football. Uh, you have Son and Madison kind of interchanging with each other. You have guys from the back line like Mickey Van Deven scoring against Luton. However, there is something to be said to the fact that out of their first six wins, four of them did come against the bottom uh, from, from the bottom tier teams. And I think in the future, I think once teams like City and Arsenal really start to ramp it up as the title chase goes on, I think uh, Spurs can kind of drop down the table. But I do think they can still challenge for Champions League. If you look at a team like Newcastle last year, they didn't think they would challenge for third and be in the Champions League and beating teams like PSG. So I think that, yes, Ange Postacoglu has gotten this team to a point where he thinks they can challenge for at least top four. But I did not think he expected them to be at in first place, uh, joint top with Arsenal, which is kind of ironic. But um, yeah, I think that in the future, I see Spurs kind of falling to that six to eight range. And I think that's where they'll finish the season. But I think Ange has them on the right track in their rebuild. I don't know if they fall to six to six eight. To eight six is, to eight is a, a big drop. That's a big drop off. Yeah, so, how, so like what teams then finish ahead of them? Brighton, Newcastle, United? I would, I would imagine so. I think yeah. that you know, Brighton have kind of been like this weird team where, you know, they lose like these big, they have these big losses to like <laughs> Villa and stuff. And, 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 and even in Europe, you know, they, Europe, they lose to weird, Ike man. Athens. Yeah. So I'm not sure, but I do think that other teams like City, Liverpool, uh, Arsenal, they'll kind mm-hmm. of like bring Spurs back to earth once they get going. That's I don't. Fair. Yeah. I think probably third or fourth would be uh, incredible success and an achievement for this Tottenham Absolutely. team. Absolutely, in year one under Ange Postecoglou, and especially just how poor Tottenham have looked under, you know, towards the back end of the or the whole really Antonio Conte era, yeah. the yeah. and under Mourinho too, it wasn't an attractive style of football. Really, you have to go back to to Pochettino to get a Tottenham team that was fun to watch. So at the very least, you've got an exciting product there, but. In 2012-2013, guess who played Glover Tottenham? Brad Friedel. Brad Friedel. Transition. What a segue. Transition. The United States segue. men's national team is in action against um, Germany and Ghana. Germany game on Saturday in East Harvard, Connecticut, and the Ghana game on uh, Tuesday in Nashville? Nashville. Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee. So, James, you're going to the USA-Germany game yeah. as a credential D reporter for WFUV Sports. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. You should be going too. If if US soccer weren't discriminatory. US soccer don't like oh, okay, I can't say that. US soccer <laughs> US soccer discriminate against me specifically. Against specifically. Specifically yeah. me. But heading into this camp, there's so many US players who are in good form right now. I think this last weekend if you just looked at collectively what this roster did in in terms of Europe very impressive. You have Yunus Musa finding Christian Pulisic for a, a an 87th minute winner for AC Milan. You had, um, what else did we have? We had Tim Way and Weston McKennie both start for Juventus. They've been sort of rotating through that right wing back position. 
But McKenny started in midfield, Wade started at wing back, which you is have, so cool. You have Leonard Maloney covers the most ground in the Bundesliga. Leonard Maloney cover, covers the most ground in the Bundesliga. Mal- Malik Tillman, I think, got a goal for PSV. Mm-hmm. He's been in good form, but he's going to miss this camp. Yeah, that, 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 one's injury. Tough. that one's tough. This was a big opportunity for him to get some minutes. That's tough. But Ricardo Pepe's looked good for PSV. Full of, Balogun, after missing those two penalties, yeah, really has really back come back yep. and, and, and been leading the line for... for um, for Monaco, shout out Joe Scally too for scoring yeah, a banger for, for Borussia Mönchengladbach. But the point is, there's a lot of good form for this U.S. Men's National Team heading into camp. And November, we've got Nations League quarterfinals, which is for qualification for the Copa America. We don't mm-hmm. directly qualify, so it'll be a two-legged tie. And we need to win that two-legged tie to be in the Copa America. So these friendlies against top-tier opponents are, are, are a good measuring stick for where we stand heading into November. Yeah, this is as good of a measuring stick as you're going to get. This is one of the best teams in the world in Germany who admittedly are going through a bit of a transitional period of their own, having underwhelmed the last two World Cups, um, and they very well know that. And I think this is, this, is a, this is a very good schedule for the U.S. Last month, not so great with Uzbekistan and Oman. This time you get Ghana and Germany. It's a, I feel like we're back at the 2014 World Cup with, this, with these opponents. But, you know, that's a lot of fun, and I, I think... Just looking at the roster of the U.S., I know we already broke it down uh, 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 previous weeks, maybe two weeks ago when the lineups uh, came out or the roster came out last week, whatever it was. I think, yeah, to your point, a lot of players in good form right now for the U.S., and that's going to have to build momentum into the Nations League uh, uh, knockout matches because those are going to qualify you for the Copa America. And this could be our last friendly until March of 2026. The U.S. soccer schedule is absolutely loaded with important matches over the next two, three years. And ahead of what is, I believe, to be the most important four-year, three-year window left in U.S. soccer history with the World Cup coming up on our shores, I think you have to get this stuff right. So for them to call in what I think is, for the most part, the correct players that you anticipate will be a part of this cycle for the next three years against good quality opponents that you have to be able to be just as good against uh, if you want to reach... I think the goal for the U.S. is get to the semifinal of the 2026 World Cup. Like, realistically, it's achievable, but you have to be better than teams like Germany. So this is really important that they're doing this now. Um, At the end of the day, the result is not going to matter in this match, but as long as we see, I think, promising stepping stones to success uh, on Saturday, I would be very uh, happy with the U.S. I'd love to see a goal or two, um, but that's going to be really tough if you look at some of the players that Germany brought. Yeah, um, so... Looking at this U.S. Uh, men's roster here, like you guys said, they all are in good form. But the most important thing is that they're in good form and they're playing for European clubs, which past iterations of U.S. soccer teams have not had. You see guys like uh, Tim Ream holding it down for Fulham. You have Christian Pulisic, who's been around the Bundesliga, now uh, starring in the Serie A. Um, you have guys like... Joe Scully playing in the Bundesliga. Chris Richards as well had a little stint in the Bundesliga as well. And going into this game against a Germany side who, in my opinion, as a lifelong Germany fan, has more questions than answers. Looking at this Germany roster, you have two forwards, both over the age of 30, both not necessarily that experienced in terms of uh, international soccer. You have... Leroy Sané is probably your best player right now in the form of his life. But then you have guys like Jamal Musiala and Florian Wirtz. Do they fit together? Can Nagelsmann, our new head coach, get something out of Kai Havertz? Who's going to be holding it down in our midfield between Kimmich, 
Hunahan Goretzka, who in our defense is going to step up because our defense has been very shaky in this kind of transitional period. You have Nicholas Sula and Rudiger who have, in, who have arguably been in good form for their clubs, but in terms of international have not been living up to their expectations. So going into this game, I do think that if the U.S. were to manage to win this game, it would be a statement win. But I still think that this is more of like a barometer for Germany as well, because these, this is kind of like the crunch time for them as well. They're hosting the Euros too, so this is a huge test for them as well. And obviously, seeing as to how they had to fire Flick and bring in Nagelsmann, this is a huge game, a huge statement game for Julian Nagelsmann as their head coach. And it's Nagelsmann, Nagelsmann's first game in charge of this German team. And it's a good point p- pointing out that the U.S. is worried about Copa America in 2024, which they're hosting. Germany are in the same exact boat hosting the Euros this, yeah. this summer. And both these teams are going to want to be in as good a form as possible heading into a tournament that you host. It's For Germany, it's a transitional period, but... The talent is still there on this roster, and it's going to be really interesting to see, number one, how they line up, and then just how the U.S. can compete with, with this German team. I, I look at Germany's squad, and it and when I think of just like their top guys on this team compared to the U.S.'s, and it, it blows it out of the water. It really does. It like, does. Let's, let's be honest. This is a generational uh, marvel of a u.s team if you will we've never had a team this talented this good we have 14 guys playing in top five leagues on this roster only four of which playing outside of europe entirely Mm -hmm. and only two of those are in major league soccer so this is this is definitely a stepping stone type of thing for the u.s but on but germany's let's make no mistake about it their worst player could probably on this squad would have a chance to walk into the u.s's starting 11 and that is always going to be the case for many more years i believe between top european sides top south american sides and the U.S. That's just the way things are. But when you put together all of the context, Germany are in a transitional period. New manager, who is, by the way, one of the most decorated managers, one of the most highly respected managers in Europe, the young Julian Nagelsmann, he's still got to figure things out with this group. We have Greg Berhalter, who's coming in for his second stint, who has very familiar, very close relationships with a lot of these players. I know that's up for debate for some of them, but the fact of the matter is they come in with very different ideas. They're both trying to do different things with the same goal of preparing for a tournament in the next summer. For the U.S., it's another tournament to host at home and prepare ahead of 2026. For Germany, it's a way to get a trophy. They're going to look at the Euros as a way to win an international trophy because they haven't done that since 2014. So I think for me, it, it's going to be it's going to be a strange... I, I think I, I'm not sure like how Germany's going to start because I mm-hmm. they have... A bunch of friendlies leading up to this Euros now where they're going to try to test the waters and find out new things. They're going to play tougher opponents than the U.S. and Mexico who they play this week. But I think they're going to make use of having the U.S. at home. And they're really going to try to throw everything they have against the States. I think the U.S. might mix things up here and there too. But, I mean, it's a friendly. At the end of the day, we're not going to learn that much from the result. We're going to learn more about how players play individually and uh, some more of those storylines there. And, I mean... We can get into a whole score prediction and everything, but at the end of the day, that stuff doesn't even really matter. Yeah, especially for a friendly. And when I look at this this U.S. team, and, and Greg Berhalter's had two games back in charge, and they looked better in that in that second game of the September window. But, you know, Greg is looked upon by this... You, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I might, because it just gets me so riled up. Greg is looked upon by this U.S. <laughs> soccer community, like, worse than, like, some, like, 
some dictators, criminals, war yeah. criminals. Yeah, he like people literally think he's he's like the worst. And I get that there were there were you might think there were some more attractive managers out there, but suck it up, Greg's in charge again. I think deal Greg, with it. Greg has the ability to get this team playing some some really good soccer. You know, he's been a part of this group. He knows the group. Maybe he doesn't have the best relationship with a couple of the guys for obvious reasons, but I think I, I'm really rooting for Greg to to get this team playing a, a, an attractive style of soccer, and they have the talent to do so, but it's just going to be interesting to see, number one, how the U.S. lines up, and how do you approach these games? Because when you have such an important window coming up next— and you've got these two games against Germany and Ghana. It's really, this is your really only shot to to maybe test something out yeah. that you'd want to that you want to put on the field for that for those November games that are so important. But it's just always hard to sort of put value on on international friendly, even though the opponent is is yeah. elite. If if I can bring it back to something Chris said about the German team, is that there are more questions than answers, and that's why friendlies are important, right? If I look at some of the questions the U.S. have had for years, namely it's been who is going to be the starting keeper ahead of the 2022 World Cup. We figured that one out. It's Matt Turner. He's going to be the keeper. Right now he's penciled in for 2026 as well. And and there's no argument there from virtually anybody in U.S. soccer discourse. But you move to the defense. And there is some conversations about who is the cen- central defense partnership going to be. I think there's a clear number one in terms of the pool that Tim Ream is the best center back this country has. But he's 36. He could very well play in the 2026 World Cup. Um, countries have played with older center backs before. You look at Portugal. They love to throw out Pepe. Italy with Chiellini. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's nothing new, but it's something you have to keep your eye on, right? He's going to be how old in, in 2026? 39? 38 turning 39? Yeah. So that's that's definitely something you have to keep your eye on. And then who is the second choice center back? Cameron Carter-Vickers is great, but in Celtic, where he's been one of the best center backs in Scotland, but... That, that league is not that much better than Major League Soccer. And then you have Miles Robinson, who is a central defender, one of the best in Major League Soccer. But again, it's Major League Soccer. So you get all these variables. Chris Richards not playing as much as he would like at Crystal Palace right now. So these are why you have these matches against really top opponents. Because you're not going to learn these answers when you're playing against teams that you're playing at at the Gold Cup all the time. You know, if you're playing Panama right now, you probably learn some things. They have good forwards, Jose Fajardo, but that's not Tomas Muller, right? That's not the kind of player that you want to be better than at the World Cup. So I think you're going to answer questions about who the center back partnership is going to be moving forward, who the left back is going to be if it's not Anthony Robinson. There's a big gap after that player. Um, and then I think up front, the striker position is, is still a battle. Belogan and, and, and Pepe, seem to be the two front runners, but don't forget about Josh Sargent, who was our starter at the I World Cup. I kind of did forget about Josh Sargent. <laughs> don't forget about him, because look, P- PSV, Pepe came and start scoring goals like crazy. I love it. Balogun is definitely, I think, I would say a level above Sargent for sure, but if Josh Sargent gets going and these guys are injured, you have to have him in the conversation as well. So there's a lot of variables here that they could hopefully learn. I think in the midfield is where they have most of their questions already answered for the U.S. But without a guy like Tyler Adams, who's going to play the six? And that's a question you got to find out. And without him here, because he's got the greatest mentality and ethic, work ethic of any player I've ever seen. Uh, he's he's the GOAT, of, of course. I'm talking about Tyler Adams. Who else is going to step up and be that leader in this room? Because there needs to be. And I think that's why having Germany and Ghana within a week is a really good way to 
you know, put these 22, 23 guys to the test and say who's going to step up in those moments. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the U.S. lines up without Tyler Adams. We saw in those Nations League semifinal and final games that it was just the Yunus Musa was kind of playing as that deep-lying player. But I'd be really interested to see how that holds up against a team like Germany, who's stronger than Mexico, but, you know, when you don't necessarily have the stability that Tyler Adams provides, can you substitute that with someone like Yunus Musa, who's good defensively, but more of a ball carrier, likes to get forward more, but maybe understands his responsibility as a six, as the guy who needs to stay home and, and protect that back four. Because there's no like-for-like like change for Tyler Adams on this roster in the pool. It's yeah. a one-of-a-kind one type of player. So I think the midfield probably just changes a little bit with with Adams out and you play a, a, a Musa, McKenney, Reyna. But the thing about Reyna is Coming off no injury. fitness. Yeah. No fitness. He hasn't played yet for Borussia Dortmund. He's been on the bench but hasn't played. So then where do you look? Maybe someone like Brendan Aronson or, or, or you start to move in that kind of direction. But... There are questions for the U.S. men's national team, despite the fact that we know a lot of the answers. I think we know the the general outline of a lot of the answers, but still, some of the specifics there's there's a lot to a lot to unpack. And Chris, for this for this Germany team, who are you looking at in particular to impress? Because it's Julian Nagelsmann's first match in charge. What do you want to see? How do you want to see this team play under Julian, Julian Nagelsmann? That's different than what they were doing under Hansi Flick. I want to see a more free flowing Germany, and I think. The answer to that is utilizing Leroy Sané on the wing more. I think Leroy Sané has been, as a Bayern fan, Bayern's best player this year. And I think he's going to be at the peak of his career come the Euros. And if he is able to perform as well as he has, Germany then does have a real shot. But I would also like to see how he utilizes two youngsters in particular, Jamal Musiala and Florian Wirtz, because these two players are two players who I think have very similar profiles, the kind of players that Germany hasn't really had before, creating something out of nothing, and how I see Nagelsmann interchanging them and also trying to incorporate an aging Thomas Muller as well, who can still do the job. So I would just like to see how Julian Nagelsmann uses the newfound creativity and flair that Germany's youngsters can bring to the table and kind of counteract it with what he already has in a midfield like Hundahan and Kimmich as well. I think it's, it's so crazy how remarkably similar these, te these teams are playing each other, but this summer they've got to get ready to host huge, huge tournaments, and there's still a lot of question marks from fans for both these teams. And, you know, James, you know a segment that I think we should bring back? Oh, no. Guess the USMNT play. Okay. Oh, God. I don't you know if we're going to I don't have one. Oh. Should I think of one right now? We us think of one right now. Me and Chris will talk. All right. You guys <laughs> keep going. I'll think of one. Okay, Chris. <laughs> In terms of Germany, what's a successful European championship? As of right now, I don't have that many expectations for this team. Um, I do think that Nagelsmann will do his best to get them to at least the semifinals, and that would be even an overachievement in my opinion. But I do think they should be looking to get out of at least the group stages against very strong European sides. Obviously, you have France, who are always going to be up there. Spain is looking very good. England, too. England as well. So I would say that in terms of you know expectations, as a Germany fan, and I know that I can't speak to German fans who actually live in the country who have been through this kind of transitional period and who have seen firsthand how bad things have gotten under, say, 
the end of the Yogi Love era and the Hansi Flick era. But I do think that one thing that Julian Nagelsmann will try to do is get Germany out of the group stage and see how far this team can go, considering that uh, elite European teams are still going to bring their best. This is the first major men's tournament that Germany will host since the 2006 World Cup, the days of Bastian Schweinsteiger and Lucas Podolski banging in the goals. But you have someone, James. So I, I have someone. Do the, is the way we want to do this the way we've traditionally done it where I give you the player and you name all their clubs or do I give you the clubs and you try to guess the player? I think... I think. What do you think would be better for this I think it would be better player? if I gave you the clubs and you tried to guess the okay. player. And I can give you some... It, there's a there's a bit of a German theme to this U.S. Okay. guess the player. That's that's my hint I'll give okay, you. Okay, so let's do the clubs. All right. First club between the years of 2009 and 2011 made 44 appearances for Hertha Berlin's second team. Okay. Second club between 2011 and 2012, 32 appearances for Borussia Dortmund's second team. Oh, my goodness. Then from 2012 to 2014, played 60 matches for Rapid Vienna in the Austrian Bundesliga. And this is where <laughs> this gets really hard right after this. Between 2014 and 17, seven appearances for RB Leipzig and nine for RB Leipzig's reserves. Between 2014 and 2017? 2014 and 2017. That is, that is so pre-Bundesliga pre pre Leipzig. Yes. Okay. Then in 2019, oh sorry, 2017 to 2019, which is when probably around the time he was like on my radar, played for Darmstadt, 48 appearances. Then after that, 11 appearances in 2019 for Toronto FC, and I think I think this might that might be the giveaway because like that that was that was like a big time to follow MLS to like right after the Red Bulls were good 2019, you know. So I feel like he might you might have known about him being in Toronto then. Is that it? There's two more. Okay. Between 2019 and 2022, he went back to Germany to play in, I believe, the second Bundesliga for Hallescher. Okay. And then now plays in the second Bundesliga, has had 53 appearances for the past two seasons for FC Kaiserslautern. All right. Do you have... I have no idea. You have How no... many appearances did he play for the... How many games did he play for the U.S.? 14. Between which years? Between 2012 and 2016, including... The 2013 win over Germany, where oh, it's so, it's, Dempsey scored twice. That's I went to that game to see who played in that game. Is to it see Boyd? It is Terrence Boyd. Terrence Boyd, baby. This guy, man. Let's go. This guy. This guy. Terrence Boyd. You can't get anything past him. All right. Terrence Boyd. That's yeah. That that I'm, was first guess. I'm very way. proud of that. Yeah, that's really good. That was, the, I needed a Germany hint. I just thought back to born in Bremen, Germany. Oh. Terrence Boyd. Oh. How old is he right now? He is 32. That's not old. He's not old. He's not old. Call him up. Get him back in there. Get him back in the fold. Dude, he's, and by the way, some of his goal scoring records are impressive. 20 goals and 30 matches for Dortmund's reserves. That's pretty good. 39 goals for Hallescher in the Bundesliga second division. That's pretty good. My, and now he's got 21 for FC Kaiserslautern. My question is when I, when I asked you to think of a player, how, why, why would your, why'd your mind go to Terrence Boyd. I went, so I went to the, I searched USA versus Germany. I was like, who has it's played in these games before? And I was like, 2013, I know we won that game. Dempsey scored Josie twice. Altidore. He subbed on for Altidore. Yep. It, was, it was, was the piece in that game. And I know he was born in Germany. So I was like, oh, I got to do Terrence Boyd. Terrence Boyd. Well, it's an exciting time for both the United States and for Germany. But I think that'll probably just about wrap it up for this yeah, week's with edition the mic drop. of FUVFC. Ended with the Terrence Boyd mic drop. It's always fun 
chatting up some footy with you guys. We'll be back next week with another episode. Who will the crew be? I don't know. We'll see. It'll be somebody cool, but we'll see you next week on FUVFC.